Hi, I'm Jenny. And I'm Shelby. And this is Chub Rub Book Club. Today on Chub Rub Book Club, we have some very special guests. Priscilla and Elise are from the podcast Novel Feelings, where they talk about books and mental health. Um, Priscilla and Elise became friends in graduate school, which I just thought was cool to note because so did me and Jenny. Um, They're both mental health professionals. Uh, Their podcast tends toward young adult fiction. Uh, And one thing that I really love uh, that they do on their podcast that I hope we will adopt is that they give Indigenous recognition. Um, So I will start. uh, I live in the state of Ohio, and I live on Erie and Kaskaskia land. Jenny? I live in the state of Louisiana, and I live on Huma and Choctaw land. And Elisa and I live in the state of Victoria in Australia, and that is Wurundjeri land. Yes, great. Thank you. Um, I would love for you guys to just uh, tell us and our listeners uh, a little bit more about yourselves, just whatever you want to share. Sure. Elise, would you like to start? Yeah, sure. So um, Shelby, Jenny, thank you so much for having us today. We're really excited to join this recording and to talk about this book. Um, Mm -hmm. So we started our podcast, Novel Feelings, in 2020. So in the middle of our fun lockdown that we were having here in (laughs) Victoria, I don't want to go too far down the COVID pathway, but let's, you know, we we all know what that's been like. Um, So Priscilla and I, we've known each other for about five years now. We met, um, as you mentioned, in our graduate school. So we both uh, are registered psychologists and we were in essentially the same degree. So we had we had a lot of the same courses together and we became very fast friends once we realised that we both had a love of books. And last year we decided that it might be interesting and a bit of a side project for us to launch our own podcast. Um, And it's been a big learning curve, but it's definitely been a lot of fun. So we released, excuse me. So we released our season one back uh, starting in November and that wrapped up uh, just before Christmas. And at the moment we're in the process of just recording and releasing a few bonus episodes before we do season two, which should go live in the middle of 2020. So our podcast is essentially book reviews uh, for stories that feature mental health issues in some capacity. So we've covered a range of books. Um, As you mentioned, we do tend towards young adult fiction, but not exclusively. So we we do include young adult books um, all the way up to sort of new adult and adult fiction, a range of genres. So everything from fantasy, contemporary uh, sci-fi actually we haven't done a sci-fi yet one we, one yet we probably should do a sci-fi one um, yes a couple of thrillers and um, a few of the books we have coming up um, you know we, we're going more like middle grade books as well so yeah a, a real range and everything in terms of mental health issues so it might include things like trauma OCD uh, dissociative identity disorder depression anxiety grief um, as well as different life experiences that can impact people in different ways so we're not limited to just sort of diagnosable mental health conditions but we really take 
a kind of holistic approach, I guess, to mental <laughs> health and really keen to have a have and spark some conversations about what authors get right and what authors might be able to do better when it comes to representing mental health on the page. Anything I you love that. want to add, Priscilla? No, I think you've <laughs> covered everything pretty well. <laughs> I just, I love that you mentioned a holistic approach because part of what we try to do on Chabra Book Club is... Um, talk about embodiment and the ways that our bodies and our lives are not segmented into these neat categories that they, um, that everything is connected and everything, um, is interconnected and that, you know, um, we're going to talk about grief quite a bit today, I imagine. And, you know, grief isn't just, in a mental thing. It's an emotional thing. It's a spiritual thing. It's a, it's an embodied thing. It's something that you feel physically. Um, so thinking about the ways that, you know, mental health isn't just, um, necessarily something diagnosable, but it's something it is, but it's also something that's lived and felt. And, um, I think that's a really important Mm -hmm. thing to bring up and I'm glad you guys are doing the work. Yes. (laughs) So grief, for example, is a great example of something that we absolutely are interested in covering and talking about, even though it's not, you know, a a mental Mm. health diagnosis. Like you can't, you know, we we don't want to pretend that there's something inherently abnormal about experiencing grief. It is such a human experience, but it's something that affects us in many, many different ways. So that's why we're definitely Mm. interested in talking about it today. Um, It's also you know, something like Chub Rub is a very interesting um, podcast for me because you know, I have a personal interest in uh, body image and eating disorder work. So that was um, a sort of special, I, I would hesitate to call myself a specialist, but that was a work, a lot of work that I was doing when I was working more in um, a private practice setting, was working with people about their relationships with their bodies um, and learning to heal from a lot of unhelpful messages that have been given to them over the years about what their bodies should look like and what their relationships with their bodies should be like. So um, was really interested when you guys reached out to us to invite us to this collaboration and to hear some of your episodes about your approach and how you um, how you interpret some of these things on the page is yeah, really interesting to me personally for that reason. Yeah, it's, it's a very personal issue when you get into um, – body image and the way that our bodies uh, contribute to our lived experiences. And uh, I think, you know, Jenny and I are, uh, we are both trained uh, in theology and biblical study. Um, And so historically, the church has had a lot of things to say about the body and the sort of body spirit dichotomy um and so we're really interested because of our own lived experiences (laughs) yes yeah exactly and and so we're interested in covering this because we have our own lived experiences like and I love that um that y'all do such great mental health work because I am a huge proponent of therapy and have been going to therapy since I was really young and uh a big part of my personal work was um, disordered eating and body image uh, that I had a really difficult time with in college. And so 
yeah, we're we're really interested in uh, the idea that all bodies are good bodies and uh, how bodies are portrayed, um, particularly in the kind of books that we like to read, which are mostly mm-hmm. um, young adult uh, fantasy sci-fi type books. So before we dive into the book stuff, um, Jenny and I typically start with an intro question just to, you know, sort of catch up a little bit. And our question Although, for this episode. Oh, go ahead, Jen. Sorry. Although to be fair, this is a book-related question, so we're not we're not deviating too far. <laughs> it is. Our questions are typically book-related, since you know this is a book club podcast. But um, makes sense. The <laughs> yes, yes, we try. Um, So the question for this episode is, what was the last book you read that kept you up past your bedtime? And uh, Priscilla, I would love if you would start off. Sure. Oh, this is a really good question because I'm actually really strict with my bedtime. So So if a book keeps me up past my bedtime, yeah, (laughs) if a book keeps me up past my bedtime, it has to be a really good book. Oh, I think the last one that's done that was the last Percy Jackson book, The Last Olympian, I think it was called. Um, I remember it's just like things just kept getting worse and getting worse. I'm like, how much do I have left? Like things have to get better soon, right? <laughs> so yeah, that was really so um I think I was quite surprised because Percy Jackson obviously is targeted as to middle grade. But it's really compelling, even as an adult, to read the the books. Yeah, and it, I think that was during a holiday, so I wasn't too mad about being kept past my bedtime. <laughs> <laughs> um, Jenny and I were talking about this right before, and I told her which book uh, I was going to talk about. And she talked about how strict her bedtime was, so <laughs> point of connection. I believe yes. I used the word... <laughs> I believe I used the word sacred in response to my bedtime. Um, <laughs> yes. <laughs> but um, I did remember that the other night I stayed up past my bedtime. Um, I was actually, this is not reflects, this doesn't reflect super well on me, but whatever. Um, I was in the middle of another, um, uh, another Zoom style meeting Um not for anything super important, but uh, I wasn't needed for a lot of it. And so I had my book open <laughs> underneath my camera and was just <laughs> reading a couple of pages and then looking up and being like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then I'd read back. Um, and that I was that. Uh, this, <laughs> and that was the second book in the Curse Breaker series by Bridget Kemmerer, which is, the, I, I, get, I get the names mixed up. It's um, A Heart So Fierce and Broken by Bridget Kemmerer and I loved that book I liked the first one but the second one was amazing so I'm looking forward to the third I'm gonna devour it yeah cool I think the third book just came out didn't it Mm -hmm. it did pretty recently right yeah Elise (laughs) uh okay so I have been reading a lot more than usual the last few days so this week um if you'd asked me this as of two days ago, the answer would have been read 
red, white, and royal blue, um, which is mm-hmm. a contemporary it's a contemporary queer romance, which uh, is Priscilla's book that I borrowed. Thank you, Priscilla. Um, <laughs> I started reading it quite late at night and it just hooked me straight away and I just kept reading until it was way past my not particularly sacred bedtime but definitely later (laughs) than I should have stayed up reading. But then uh, after about two days of making a pretty solid effort to get about two-thirds of the way through Red, White and Royal Blue, my copy of A Court of Silver Flames arrived, um, which might date this podcast if people are listening in the future but let's just say that the bookish community is very excited about the release of A Court of Silver Flames and as someone who always makes the mistake of pre-ordering the book instead of just going to a bookstore on the day of the release um, it didn't arrive on the day that I had been hoping it would so it arrived a couple of days later and as soon as it was on my doorstep I'm like (gasps) okay (laughs) and pretty much just started reading it straight away so um it is a very very long book so I think it's something like 760 pages yeah yeah so I I have not finished it yet but I can assure you that once we finish this recording I'm quite likely to be picking it up again and to finally getting um finally getting to the ending probably this weekend I told Priscilla when it arrived and you were like we're taking guesses of how long (laughs) it would take me to read it we originally guessed a week but it looks like it's going to be about probably three to four days (laughs) (laughs) the fastest Um, I think I've read since um Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows was released back in 2007, I think. Yeah, that was I was I was definitely faster with that, but yeah, I don't normally read this fast, but I will make a <laughs> make an exception <laughs> for new um, Sarah J. Mass books. <laughs> Elise, I'm on chapter 20, so and I put it down right when I got on the computer, so I'm with you. <laughs> yeah, and. Um, coincidentally, uh, the book that has kept me up past my bedtime is A Court of Silver Flames. Um, (laughs) I also pre-ordered it and it actually arrived on the day and I had like, this is indicative of how busy I am at work right now. I had totally forgotten that the release date was coming and it showed up on my doorstep Mm -hmm. and it was like, well, I have to drop everything. Um, (laughs) So unfortunately I have not actually been able to do that. Um, And I have been pretty slammed uh, because we're recording this the first week of Lent, uh, which for a pastor is pretty busy. Um, So I'm, I'm preaching this Sunday and have not gotten as much reading time in as I hoped um so I'm not very far no spoilers but uh I'm I'm really excited to continue reading it too and uh Elise I love that you mentioned that you're reading this like and the last book that you read this fast was Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows because I've read the seventh Harry Potter book I don't know probably something like 18 times now um it's like a comfort thing for me. And uh, when I first got it, uh, I had to wait until my dad was done reading it so that I could use his copy. Uh, But I read it in a day and a half. And I was just... Oh, wow. uh, (laughs) I'm pretty sure I read it in a day. So I was... 
I was a teenager at the time, so I couldn't drive or anything. But thankfully, my mum went and picked it up from the bookstore for me <laughs> very early in the morning at my insistence, came back and I pretty much just read solidly until, I don't know, 1am, 2am or something. That's the <laughs> fastest I've ever read a book that size. And I've never done it quite like that since but made an exception for teenage me and harry potter <laughs> yes yes so precisely well, when it came out i was on- i think we'll have to uh get the group chat going once we do all finish a court of silver flames yes <laughs> i definitely need some opinions uh i Not will have to <laughs> yes i'll have to out myself as the minority in this group because i haven't even read a court of wings and ruins. I have a lot to catch up on. <laughs> yes, but I did. I listened to y'all's episode on. Um, oh my gosh, the name is going to leave me Mist of right now. Mist and Fury. Yes, and that was. Uh, I listened to your intro episode, and and then I skipped right to that one because I had to hear what you had to say. Um, and I loved how you guys covered that. Um, and yeah, I have lots of thoughts. But that is not the book that we're talking about. Um, This episode, we are going to be talking about um, Jenny. Yeah. (laughs) Jenny typically does our synopsis anyway, so let's just pass it on over. Synopsis is such a generous word, Shelley. Shelby, what? <laughs> you're very you're very generous to me. Synopsis is generous for what I do. Um, so <laughs> we we read House of Salt and Sorrows. Is it Sorrows or Sorrow? I always mess this up. Sorrows. I checked, and it's by Aaron A. Craig, and it is a is a retelling of the Twelve Dancing Princesses in a sort of gothic horror style that's also heavily maritime themed um it centers around annalee thomas thomas who could say uh, right. the, the maybe thomas uh the audiobook pronounced it uh something it's oh man i have to look at it to even be able to pronounce it but um but it was like yeah it was it was more like tamas or i don't know it the the surprise the pronunciation surprised me but however it's pronounced um she the book opens with her grieving her sister um and there's going to be argument about how to or discussion about how to pronounce this name too Uh, i say you lily but um the audiobook pronounced it Eulalie. That is, I'm not saying that the audiobook is the authority on this, but. <laughs> That's how I said it in my head, Eulalie. But I feel like Tomas um, is a very like French, uh, gentle kind of word. And then Eulalie seems a bit, um, <laughs> a bit contrasting, but whatever. So her, there's a lot of, there's a lot of names that we need to get through for this. Her sister has just died. Her sister has, er, her previously named sister has just died and she has had other sisters die before this i believe this is at the beginning this is the fifth sister that's died fourth or fifth and spoilers she will not be the last um (laughs) yeah 
And so it kind of deals with her unraveling. Is her family cursed? Um, is it just a series of bad luck? Um, is there uh, madness occurring in her family? Um, whatever that means. Um, and yeah, it it's it's a rip roar in time. Is it? I don't know. Reader, that's not the reader. But there's to be discussed. To be discussed. <laughs> anyway, that's it. Um, yeah, and uh, just a content warning. Uh, this book is rich in uh, topics on mental health, uh, and especially because we have Elise and Priscilla here, uh, that will be our main focus for this podcast, and our discussion will include um, suicide. And so just wanted to uh, give a warning for that. We'll also be uh, discussing trauma and its effects, uh, quote unquote, madness, um, and more. So yeah, there's there's a lot here. Uh, and I know that y'all have a lot of thoughts. So yeah, <laughs> yeah. let's dive in. Yeah. <laughs> And I'll be interested in your thoughts as well, because I find this book to be really physical in some ways, very gory as well. I was really quite surprised when that started happening. But yeah, I'm looking forward to hear. I'm looking forward to hearing your thoughts on the embodiment aspect of the story as well. Yeah, I'm really curious about how you originally came across this book. So I hadn't actually heard of it before our group discussion and we were deciding upon the book for today. Um, I found it. It was recommended to me by, um, I believe, some girl on YouTube. I couldn't tell you um, I couldn't tell you exactly who, um, someone deep in my in the algorithm. Um, <laughs> apologies. Um, but yeah, I, I had been intrigued by, um, I'd wanted something sort of spooky. Um, and I'd heard that it was spooky and I found it at the library and had heard of it and just picked it up and, um, decided to read it. And then when I, um, heard about y'all's focus on your podcast and, I was like, oh, this is, there's a lot to talk about here um, <laughs> and for good or ill. And, um, but I, it was funny when we first started talking about it, there, the question came up of like, oh, why do you think this would be good for, to talk about with mental health? And it was like, well, the whole sort of reveal is that the, the dancing of the dancing princesses isn't actually happening, that it's all in their minds. And it's all this like, you know, curse that's been put upon them to, to have these really vivid hallucinations. And, you know, so I didn't want to share that right out the bat. Um, but it also is so key to understanding, I think, what the book is trying to communicate, um, whether it does that well or not. Mm. Yeah, I remember you saying, I remember when this suggestion came up in our chat and like, oh, okay, what, what sort of mental health issues are covered today? And it was a case of, well, I can't really tell you because it's a spoiler. So I, when I started reading it, my mind was going, what is it? What's coming up? Is it this? Is it this? Is it this? That thing where you know that there's a twist of some sort, but you don't know what it's going to be. But yeah, it, um, it wasn't entirely what I 
expected, um, but I'll, I might go into that further down the track. Yeah, I would have to agree. Not what I expected. And like, I mean, even though Jenny told me like, you know, the, the twist at the end is it just reframes how you see the rest of the book. It still took me by surprise. And um, I think that in your notes, uh, Elise and Priscilla, you said it well, that the world building wasn't really enough to support the twist ending. And so mm. it was kind of like a just, I don't know, whiplash of like, oh, wait, this is what we're talking mm. about. And uh, yeah, so yeah, there's there's a lot to unpack there. But uh, I'd mm. really like kind to Kind of came start... out of nowhere. <laughs> yes, it did. It did. Um, but I'd, I'd like to start with grief because it's something that we mentioned earlier and um, it, it plays a role in the initial framing of the story. Um, and I think especially like the, the rituals that they have around grief, uh, that it's time bound, uh, that they grieve for a certain number of months. And during those months, they wear black and then progressively uh, move back into color, uh, going gray and then uh, lighter gray, et cetera. And yeah, it's really interesting because, I mean, we we see this in our own worlds of, you know, wearing black to funerals, uh, but the idea of mourning being displayed in, uh, in what you wear for an extended period of time, uh, I haven't really heard of that in a contemporary setting. Of course, this isn't contemporary. It's fantasy. But um, yeah, that was really interesting to me. Mm-hmm. And of course, as a note, like that that lack of our experience with that is is culturally and socially framed, right? Like there are plenty of contemporary societies that have mourning rituals. Um, our middle-class American, um, Southern American even, um, uh, situation doesn't, but that doesn't mean that other, you know, contemporary societies don't have these same rituals or similar rituals. Yeah. And they've definitely existed throughout history in different um, historical periods as well. The one that comes to mind for me is, um, you know, I'm, I'm not sure of the exact dates. My history knowledge is always a little bit shoddy. But, um, you know, the, the sort of example of a widow who's expected to wear black for the rest of her life after her husband has died in um, you know a couple of hundred years ago, that's what springs to mind. But I think, yeah, um, the author was definitely drawing from those types of experiences when it came to portraying this for for better or worse I'd say like um I don't I think there are definitely pros to having rituals but yeah we use this idea of performative grief um Mm -hmm. which Priscilla and I were talking about so the idea that the way that the family the Thomas family was performing their grief for other people based on cultural expectations and maybe not matching their own personal experiences and the emotions that they were going through I know Priscilla, you had a few thoughts on that if you wanted to share them. 
Yeah, I found that particularly interesting with their dad because there's a problem with his characterization, I think, which is partly due to the writing, but also when we first meet him, he's very much grieving, crying, and he's wearing all black and he's performing all the right rituals. And then we find out that actually all this time he was also having affairs and not actually... I suppose taking it as seriously as he appears to. So it's just really that performance so that other people can see how sad he is. Um, I also really feel for the for the sisters having to follow, you know, wearing black for months and months and then wearing gray after that and having to present as sad for all that time when they could be having other life experiences as well. I don't blame them for not wanting to do that over and over again. It almost seems like they never come out of the grieving area because the deaths happen one after another. And that can't be good for someone's development emotionally. Yeah, and I mean, especially, um, I think the ways that these rituals affect the different characters in different ways, like, Annalie has um, a an attachment, at least initially, to this ritual and wants to give Eulalie the respect that she feels she deserves and that, you know, they gave to their other sisters and to their mother. And the rest of her family uh, sort of feels like they're in a rush to move on, especially mm-hmm. because the stepmother, Morella, is uh, revealed to be pregnant and... Uh, there's this pressure for her to sort of get over it before she's ready. Um, And there's also, you know, sort of on the other side, uh, especially the triplets feel this pressure to be grieving when that's not the way that they want to grieve. They want to go ahead and continue to live their lives. Um, But the mourning rituals have uh, felt restricting to them. So... Yeah, this yeah. These societal expectations yeah. sort of box in their grief. Or try mm, to. Absolutely. And I think it's really, yeah, and it's really important that, you know, f- for a lot of people, grief isn't this kind of linear progression that we tend to expect of some people. So there's a bit of a society, a socially acceptable way of grieving, which is kind of like intense sadness followed by that sadness reducing over time and maybe, you know, occasional pangs of grieving for somebody. But for a lot of people, it doesn't really work in that that way. So, And there's no right or wrong way to grieve as well. But what's built, what seems to be the assumption behind these rituals for their family is that, yes, intense grieving and then we'll gradually reduce that over time instead of maybe a more personal um, bespoke experience in a way so you know we get that with Annalie who doesn't feel ready to move on although one one um, thing that I wasn't so keen on with the story was that Annalie was pressured by her family to drop the rituals earlier than she was ready to and I did feel like yes I don't have an issue from a storytelling perspective with that happening because I could see that happening what I did have an issue with was that Annalie seemed to move on from the grief pretty quickly after she 
wasn't ready to move on. So that was something that I did have a little bit of a concern with um, that she kind of just went with the flow and seemed to be mostly okay with that. Yeah. Well, and I think uh, especially the way that uh, she sort of transformed her grief into this mission, uh, at least she, she didn't lose sight of Eulalie's untimely death in the way that she was very suspicious of how it happened and you know so she she didn't continue grief uh in in the way that was typically expected of her um but she almost seems to pester the rest of them with her continued need for a a Mm. resolution um you know just some closure around what happened to you lately and she didn't believe that it was an accident. She didn't believe that it was suicide. And she really believed that, uh, that her sister had been killed. And I think that kept it lingering in a way, which of course aided the story because it added that um, mystery aspect uh, to it. But, um, but also sort of reminded us continually of this, you know, quote unquote curse that's very true and that's a good way of thinking about it that maybe her grief was channeled into into something else into this desire I think as a culture and again I'm speaking from my own experience um this is obviously you know based on sort of western and even maybe American um understandings of grief but I think what I'm familiar with is so wedded to like Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's stages of grief, Um, you know, um, sadness, anger, denial, um, bargaining. I can't remember the last one. Acceptance. Is that all of them? Acceptance. Yeah. Yeah. Um, You know, in this, and like you said, Priscilla, um, excuse me, Elise, that it's this linear um, experience where it's so often up and down um, and regressive and, there are days that are fine and there are days that are hard. And so it was hard, I think for me in the book for each character to sort of have one feeling about the grief. Um, Grief is such a complicated experience and such a multi-layered experience that for, um, you know, one sister to be like all gung ho about it another sister to, you know, to want to mourn like, in some ways that just feels like such a flattening of actual human experience, which is so much more varied. Yeah. I think I would have loved to see um, the impact of the grief on Faraday a bit more. Initially I thought it was fascinating when she came to Annalie with the drawings and everyone sort of dismissed that as just her imagination in a way. I would have, yeah, pretty gruesome for a six-year-old or however old she was, if she was just imagining those things. I think it would have been interesting to explore that as a product of her grief and literally being born into grieving. Um, But yeah, I feel a bit cheated by the explanation for her drawings and what she saw because of that. I wanted it to be more of an exploration of grief than what it really was. 
Yeah, definitely. Absolutely. Yeah. I feel like, yeah, just kind of, um, so the, I, I know like we do spoilers, right? So, so yeah. we, we learn at the end, of course, that, um, you know, this, this God Cosmaris has been behind a lot of these experiences for the family. And part of that is that she's impacting on verity and causing these hallucinations, these really, really scary sort of um, visions for verity. And, I think when you, so if, if Verity were a real person, if you weren't, if you, you know, ignoring all of that side of things, the haunting and so on, um, she would most likely still be really affected by being born into grief and having all of this trauma around her with the deaths of her sisters and everybody just, you know, everyone in her immediate circle being highly impacted by that as well and that would impact on relationships and how they treat each other and how they treat her and how they act as bigger sisters in, or, you know, in more of a parental role as well. Um, and But we don't really see that. It's just, it, Everything kind of gets resolved once Cosimaris goes away. Um, that, that was a big concern I had with this book in many ways, unfortunately. Shall we? Yeah, I uh, the idea of Verity being born into grief, I think, is a really great way of putting it. And I don't remember which sister Annalie was talking to about this. I think it was maybe Camille, um, where they talked about their mother's death and um, how it was... Okay, you know what? Now that I'm thinking about this... Are you thinking about Bridgerton? I think I'm conflating this with Bridgerton. <laughs> Disregard everything I have just said. Uh, I don't know if you guys have seen Bridgerton, but uh, the mother dies in childbirth. And so it's kind of explained as like, yeah, that was sad. But at the end, we had this new sibling. Um, I don't remember if that's what happens in this book. Is it? It's not, right? She was like sick or something. Yeah, I think Does she was sick remember? while she was pregnant, perhaps. Um, I got very confused about the explanations for all the deaths. Like, where did Cosimara started start? Sorry, where did Cosimara yeah, start? That was a natural cause. Yeah. <laughs> I think maybe the mom died of a natural cause during birth, the birth of Faraday. And then Morella messed with the three sisters or something or she only murdered Eulalie yeah well so I know that Morella like pushed Eulalie off the cliff because she found out what she was plotting and I think the only two other sisters that were killed by her were the two triplets um that weren't killed directly by her but as the cause of her like making this bargain or whatever um but yeah the the deaths before that I mean it's just pretty wild to think that all of that happened naturally like I can understand where they're coming from of like we are cursed um and how Morella sort of used that to play into her own um interests uh but one of the deaths that was particularly interesting to me was Elizabeth's 
because she did, according to the book, commit suicide. Um, and I think different people in different societies have, you know, different ways of thinking about suicide and dealing with it. Uh, but one thing that is mentioned is uh, the the mariner, their religious leader, uh, sort of has this subtle, underhanded way of chastising uh, Elizabeth after her death for the way that she died. Uh, and I think that uh, blaming has... Yeah, there, there's a lot there, and it's it's true to real life experience for a lot of people um, who are going through extreme grief at the death of a loved one who committed uh, suicide. Or, I think the I don't know what the term a, a better term is. What what do you guys use in your practice? We would usually say perhaps died by suicide. Um, okay or suicidal behavior yeah it's uh mm-hmm. and feel free to to cut this out or anything um but yeah so I work in a mental health organization we do a lot of work with media and stuff about language and the um we tend we tend to avoid saying committed by because of the implication that suicide is a crime which it mm-hmm. was historically it was considered unlawful but um because that can feed into stigma so there's guidelines around how to say it It is a bit tricky especially when you're used to saying to like in a grammatical sense to saying it that way but we would typically say like died by suicide or attempted suicide or survived a suicide attempt um Mm -hmm. that kind of language if that makes sense now that I'm now that I'm thinking about it I think uh the more recent language that I've heard is completed um and uh but I I really appreciate what you're saying because that's something that Jenny and I talk about a lot is the way that our language um, matters. And so uh, we like to use this kind of conversation as learning experiences, not just for us, but for our Mm -hmm. listeners um, who may not have been exposed to uh, these sort of ideas. So, yeah, but um, the the point that I was trying to fully acknowledge as well that like, Go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> I think we're just um, lagging a little bit there. Um, I was just going to say that the uh, what's recommended or the contextual factors can be quite different between different areas as well. So what is um, recommended for America might be very different to re- what's recommended by Australia. Um, but yeah, I, I have a, a summary of suggested language. If you were interested, I, I'd be very happy to pass that on to you if you'd be keen on what what is recommended in the Australian context anyway. Definitely. And and we could link it in the show notes as well. Sure. If you'd be cool with that. Um, in, I think the conversation about language and the conversation uh, surrounding suicide and the conversation about um, their religious figure, the high mariners attitude, I think they're interconnected. I think, um, And I wonder if I'm going somewhere with this thought. So I think that there's so much stigma. I think the stigma around suicide gets conflated with the stigma around suicidality. Um, And to to the extent that people who 
are experiencing suicidal ideations are afraid to come to confide in people because of that stigma. Um, And so the language that's sort of briefly discussed in the book about, um, you know, about how shameful it is, like, it's a terrible thing to happen and awful for a family and awful that um, the person who died by suicide um, felt that that was the choice that they, yeah, that that was the choice that was made. Um, But I, I feel like the shame conversation makes it so much harder for people who are experiencing that to come forward and to share and to confide in someone. And I wonder in some ways if this book is doing, I, I don't want to, I don't want to cast aspersions at all. I believe I, you know, have every, I have every reason to believe that the author meant extremely well um, in writing this, but I do sort of wonder if there's a sensationalization that happens in this book of the deaths. Um, if it makes it all seem a little, a little uh, so fantastical as to be, um, as to be sensational. And I wonder if that overlaps with sort of how the book portrays. And again, I'm going to use an antiquated and unhelpful term, but quote unquote madness. Um, if it does more harm than good by sensationalizing it and exoticizing it. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely have a lot to say about madness. Um, again, quote unquote madness down the track. (laughs) Yeah, and uh, I we will for sure get there. Um, I I do want to uh, talk a, a little bit more about like the religious um, and like spiritual involvement in um, you know sort of what what is talked about around suicide uh, because it also plays into like what you believe about life after death and the the way that the gods are portrayed um in this book there's sort of like an inner sanctum type space um where gods are sort of dwelling apart from humanity um but then you know cassius one of the love interests who we find out is uh the child of a god uh or goddess um has actually met Annalie's sisters uh, who are dead. And so there's, yeah, there's some interesting ideas there about, you know, do you believe in ghosts? Do you believe that people go somewhere, um, you know, either like a a heaven-like place or a hell-like place when they die? And all of that feeds into our language about – about suicide yeah i i was curious about that because i think during eulalie's funeral the high mariner was saying you know we are people of the salt so we go back to the sea when we pass that doesn't seem to indicate an afterlife well it's a lot like dust to dust that happens in christian cultures um but apart from that there doesn't seem to be much conversation around where the souls go I suppose and 
I have a lot of complaints about the way the divinity is set up in the story, because as we discussed before, the world building is just not quite strong enough to justify what we find out later in the book. But it's also, I feel like it draws a lot from the Greek god system, but it's not consistent in that way, because, you know, if they go back to if they're the people of the sea, sorry, if they're the people of the salt, even, where do the other gods play in? Are they, do they govern over the same afterlife, for example? Or, or is there, are there different places that the souls go to, depending on what you believe? Different, sorry. <laughs> Are there different places the souls go to, depending on what you believe in and which god or goddess you um, prioritize, I suppose? So, yeah, lots of unclear parts about the system, I feel. I just want it stated on record that when Cassius was revealed to be half-god, I rolled my eyes. Like, I was like, of course. Like, are you kidding me? Like, um and so when when that was brought up just now in the conversation like I felt I had a visceral like bodily reaction to it I was like oh my god like so carry on it just needed to note for people who couldn't see my face when that was mentioned that that was what happened yeah I'm just gonna go out here and say I did not particularly care about either of the love interests in this story um I feel (laughs) I found them to be quite bland and lacked a personality, um, but also were quite a sort of archetypy. Like they didn't really have enough of a unique twist to them to make me particularly feel invested in either of their relationships with Annalie. It was very much like, oh, there's Fisher, who's the, the childhood friend, the boy next door. And then there's mysterious handsome dark stranger Cassius who also happens to be the son of the god and I can't really remember much else about him he was fine that was that was about it I mean he the thing that like really got me and to be honest I didn't even remember this uh because I read the book a little while ago I went back today and read like a summary and it said and at the end Cassius dies but then because he's the son of a god, he comes back to life so that he can be with Annalie forever. And I'm like, wow, you really think that that's something that I would have remembered seeing as like <laughs> themes of resurrection are pretty prevalent in my line of work. But I honestly just like didn't care about him enough. And I, I hated that ending. Same. Um so funny you say that because Priscilla and I had did the exact same thing today where I we looked up a, synops- a summary it's probably the same one because I think it was the same line and I messaged that to Priscilla and was like well isn't that neat <laughs> convenient yeah I also want to say that when I finished that book when I finished the book and read that up epilogue I was like really I feel like that was a waste of my time <laughs> I just, again, with the world building, though, because I didn't, it wasn't set up that these gods could, or half gods, demigods, whatever they are, could come back to life. So I just felt like, oh, really? Like, 
that's that's very convenient. I mean, mm. what a nice happy ending to have after all of this trauma that isn't really addressed adequately in this story. But your boyfriend's back from the dead, so great. Yeah, you wished it hard enough, so here you go. You can have him back. <laughs> Just that's like how, in real that's life. How resurrection works. Yes, yeah. exactly. <laughs> And all the all the little sisters are out playing, and it's fine. And Annalise, like, their surrogate mom now on the island, and like, never mind that like, the lighthouse was the scene of this like complete gory, awful disaster. Like, she just keeps the lighthouse now, and it's like, what the heck? Like, yeah, there is some lingering trauma here. <laughs> yeah, it's. I'm sure we'll get to that when we talk about the trauma as well, that aspect of things. Yeah. Maybe this would lead us nicely into our concerns about the trauma as it's <laughs> depicted in this story. Yeah, yeah, go for it. Yeah. So I guess, um, yeah, to sort of summarize some of those points we've made, there. All right. So, so there's a lot of traumatic experiences that happen in this story, and Annalie in particular witnesses a lot of truly awful things that happened to her family or just very disturbing things through hallucinations and so on. Um, and I'll just note that not everybody who experiences trauma does develop PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, it's only something like, I can't remember the exact statistic, but it is a minority, something like 30%. So it's not a case that everybody has to experience PTSD. But I did find it quite surprising that nobody in the family really did seem to experience longer term impacts of the trauma. So there were maybe sort of aspects of PTSD that happened. So things like, um, you know, nightmares or feeling on edge. Um, so that kind of bodily experience of the way that trauma um, sort of manifests itself in the body that was happening a little bit throughout the story, but yeah, it was sort of the lack of long-term impact um you know it was kind of like the the trauma was removed by the end of the story or seemingly removed with um everything that happened with Cosimaris being revealed and Morella being sort of the catalyst for that so, so her passing away by the end of the story but yeah by the end of it like everyone just seemed to be okay and you know we had that, that this trope that I know uh, Priscilla and I dislike with a passion which is the idea of love curing all um, so in this case, you know, oh, you 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 have a love interest, therefore you are not experiencing mental health issues anymore. So in this case, it seemed to be that Annalie was ex was experiencing that. So I just really wish that had been handled with a bit more nuance and not tied up so neatly. You've got all of these young teenage girls who have been vastly <laughs> traumatised throughout this book and they all seem to be pretty much okay at the end. I found that quite concerning. Yeah, I think especially compared to the ways that trauma has been portrayed well in other works of fiction, um, the one that immediately comes to my mind is The Hunger Games, mm -hmm. uh, which does result in a sort of happy ending but it does that without dismissing the trauma that they've been through it, it does that acknowledging that it's a hard road to get there and it's not over just because 
they've you know gotten married and had kids or whatever uh you know that that happy ever after is more complicated than that and that's one thing that i longed for in this book that i just didn't get yeah and as ali said not all not everyone who experiences trauma develops ptsd but trauma at such a formative age would form their experiences or the way they see the world and i was curious about how that would have sorry let me say that again i would have liked to see some of that come out when morella was pregnant because as we discussed before at least their mom's pregnancy with Verity was difficult. But this is also a woman who's had 11, 12 children by that stage. At least the older girls would have seen how difficult a pregnancy would be. Yet, I, this might be my memory of the book, but they all don't really seem to care that much about what would happen when Morella is pregnant, apart from whether or not this child will take over ownership of their estate. Yeah. It's interesting that you bring up. And yeah. Go ahead, Elise. Sorry, you go, Shelby. (laughs) We're being Um, too polite. Um, (laughs) I was just going to mention briefly (laughs) that um, Priscilla, you mentioned earlier the impact on Verity of the grief on Verity, but I'm, you know, linked with that is the traumatic traumatic experiences that Verity was having too and she's five or six I Mm. think at the time so very young age to be experiencing such disturbing events and I yeah again if she were a real person I would be wanting to make sure that she was well supported and feeling safe and to you know have some kind of intervention to um, or things in place to support her. But, you know, again, this is another fantasy world where there doesn't seem to be, really be any therapists around. So <laughs> wouldn't that be great if more of these fantasy worlds had um, a little bit more understanding about mental health? <laughs> <laughs> but we have to approach it with our contemporary lens and what we what we know now. Um, yeah, and this was written in contemporary times, even if it was set in an unspecified olden mm. period. Um, do we know when this book was set, by the way? I was very confused about what time period it was trying to replicate. I don't think so. It felt I had Victorian. To... But yeah. yeah, that was my guess. Mm-hmm. Priscilla, you mentioned the whole like debate about whether or not Morella's child or children, if it was you know a boy or whatever, um, would take over the responsibility of the estate. And I thought, you know, one thing that was uh, sort of cool and compelling about this book was the the idea that things didn't have to pass through a patriarchal line. Um, and it, there was a lot more potential than I think was actually um, used uh, for this sort of female power and connection. Um, I think it leaned a little too heavily into the love interests that, you know, that temporary love triangle. Um, But yeah, like there, it was, 
I think the relationship between the sisters um, and the way that they sort of assume that the the state and their possessions will sort of remain in their hands um, rather than passing to, you know, a possible brother uh, was a cool idea. I mean, it still goes along with the idea that, like, uh, inheritance is linear based on age and things like that. But uh, I feel like there was some potential there that didn't get fully hashed out. Yeah, I completely agree. And I think Elise and I had some discussions around this in relation to Camille, that there was no doubt in anyone's mind that the estate would pass to her. And I think their dad even said that at one point, no matter what gender, regardless of Morella's baby's gender, Camille Camille has the right to the inheritance. And yet she was so focused on getting married which I didn't understand because she was secure financially um, without a husband. And yet she spent most of the book almost desperate for one. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I agree. I think, one, this goes back to the inconsistency in the world building, I feel, but also that it misses out on an opportunity to explore that more... um, feminist approach yeah um do we want to maybe start talking about our concerns about the the quote-unquote madness that's depicted in this story yes (laughs) okay um all right so essentially to summarize what's going on so we learn by the end of the book that the sisters have not been attending these balls. They think they've been attending and that this is actually an elaborate sort of shared hallucination that's being experienced here um, as a result of, and let me see if I've got this correct because I, you know, I found it so confusing. So Morella called on Biscardi, who's a trickster, who called on Cosimaris, who is a god. Um, I can't remember her title, but it was something like, Harbinger, yeah, harbinger of, of something nightmares and madness or something along those lines um so it was a little bit convoluted how we got there but you know end of the day they're not actually going to these balls like they think they are it's a it's a hallucination also Cosimaris is impacting the sisters by making them see see things and have these experiences that aren't actually there so making these visions appear to verity and making these visions appear to Annalie of very disturbing things that are happening, mostly around their sisters who have already died. So making them, making it seem like they're being haunted in a way. Um, and yeah, I guess I just had a few concerns about this and I don't think these, my concerns here are not just limited to this book because this isn't the only book that's used this kind of plot point of having, um, you know, hauntings or um somebody experiencing some kind of hallucination as a result of a a a fantasy force so a god a ghost a witch whatever it might be so it's not my criticisms of this trope aren't specific to this story but 
I guess I just have concerns when this kind of fantasy, quote-unquote, madness, um, it, it's essentially mirroring real-life psychosis without it actually being real-life psychosis. And I don't think it really does that much to sort of destigmatize psychosis, which is a very real condition that's caused by genetic and environmental factors and can impact on people in many significant ways. So it can be absolutely terrifying, but also often co-occurs with, um, as I've mentioned, stigma, but also things like um, you know, poverty, education, difficulty getting employment, lots of other factors that sort of exacerbate this experience. Um, on the flip side, it's possible to have single episode psychosis or to live with psychosis in the long term and manage it well with you know a combination of supports that works for that person so that might be medication but it could also be counseling or social support essentially psychosis it's complicated right so it's not it's but it's not a death sentence um it's something that we can live with and thrive despite experiencing but when we have these depictions again and again that make this types this type of experience seem like something that doesn't happen organically and it's just a curse, a terrible thing, a nightmare leading to a tragic end. Um, in this case, Cosimaris wanted to drive Annalie to suicide. That's actually quite explicitly stated that that was Cosimaris's end goal. Um, yeah, I just don't think it, it does that much to actually help people who might be experiencing something similar but in a real-life contemporary setting. To know what what do you all think about this or am I just overthinking I'm not sure I definitely don't think that you're overthinking <laughs> this I I think that your um you know your education and uh and career uh vocation inform your perspective on this for sure but I think that you articulated a lot of what I was thinking and feeling, but didn't quite have the vocabulary for. Hmm. I think, I think you're right. Um, the one, the one place where I feel where I understand this perspective a little bit is um, I've mentioned before on the podcast that my grandmother, um, my, my father's mother, who I never met was um, diagnosed um, with what at the time they called paranoid schizophrenia. And um, I, when my, when my experience of my own mental health issues was sort of beginning um I had this like really strange feeling that like that like my grandmother's ghost or spirit was going to drive me mad and you know that it's 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 sort of melodramatic but um and I didn't literally necessarily believe that you know some ghost was visiting upon me but there was this sense that like there was this familial connection and like I, it was inescapable and it was this looming thing um and I don't necessarily think that's a, you know, a positive perspective that I had when I was experiencing this, but um, it did sort of resonate for me in this idea of that fear I did experience, like that felt, that felt genuine um, and was reflected in some ways on the pages. Um, but that might be me 
you know, falling prey to a larger trope in the culture and not necessarily, you know, it might be sort of more circular that this trope exists and therefore I felt that way rather than um, I felt that way and it's validating to see it in a trope, you know. Mm. I guess one thing I did want to note is I did feel that even with my overarching concerns about this trope, um, that it did portray Annalia's experience quite empathetically. So with the terror that she felt, the anxiety, how she was questioning her own experiences and her perceptions and how other people around her didn't seem to really understand what she was going through and had a lot of trouble stepping into her shoes. So I did, I suppose the the emotional side of things, I definitely did um, I I felt that was done quite well it's more of the uh, uh, just the uh, the way this trope is applied in general Mm -hmm. and in other examples too so I was when I listened to your episode about the Lunar Chronicles this came to mind again um, when talking about Winter's experience with what do they call it Lunar Madness or something along those lines so again it's this idea of a, a fantasy kind of psychosis so fantasy um, hallucinations or delusions um, and it just you know again like the, the way other people responded to her um, and invalidated her I thought was handled quite well but again with the way that the actual experience is portrayed that's when I had a few concerns so there's definitely empathy that's within that but yeah it's more more of an overarching concern I suppose hmm. Priscilla, what were your thoughts on this? I, I think we iterated um, as I tried to like word vomit my yeah. my thoughts to you before I wrote this little <laughs> summary here. <laughs> yeah, well, I don't have anything to add from that perspective. It's just that this the whole thing annoyed me. <laughs> um, you know that oh, you know we they went on this grand adventures and turned out it was all hallucination my feelings about this trope apart from what Elise already discussed is more uh, about the experience as a reader I feel Um, I think it's sort of a double-edged sword in that my confusion matched Annalise's confusion so I had a lot of sympathy for her but as a reader I was really annoyed that it sort of negated a lot of the plot you know they had the whole adventure to find the the door they went on these dances and supposedly come out of their grief and enjoyed life as teenage girls or tween girls or some of them but it was all a lie and yeah i i, I almost preferred if annalee actually did imagine everything as part of a psychosis because then that's something um I don't want to say worthy is not the word but something that would validate the experience still that perhaps Annalie was driven by grief and such a strong sense of loss over Eulalie that she imagined a place that they could all enjoy themselves and be free of the grief that they've had but to have it be the creation of some harbinger that we didn't know existed before this happened was just really annoying to me as a reader. 
Yeah, I completely agree. And just on that note, that was actually what I was, when I first read the book, when I, what I predicted was, oh, maybe it is actually an experience of psychosis as we know it in more of a contemporary setting. And I thought that would have been an interesting thing to actually portray because, you know, they're looking for these fantasy explanations about what could be going on, but maybe it is something that's just, um, you know, maybe within their family, it could be that these traumas they've experienced are an environmental trigger for a first episode of psychosis. And I would have been curious to learn how the family would have navigated that when they don't have the vocabulary and the support that we might have now I mean, even with the, the vocabulary and the support that we have now, it's still not an easy experience for people to go through and it, you know, it, it's very complicated. But, yeah, that was maybe what I thought was going on and I'm like, oh, this would actually be a really interesting twist. But, no, it, it just ended up being that there was this um, god that came out of nowhere that was behind everything, which, yeah, I felt a bit cheated by that. Yeah, I agree. Like, especially because we were messaging about this and the three of us hadn't read it, but Jenny had. And she was like, yeah, I can't give it away because like the (laughs) mental health bit is sort of like encompassed in the twist. And I was like, oh, you know, when I got to that point, I was like, oh, this is the twist. And then like, I don't know, like two chapters or whatever later, it's like, oh, no, that wasn't the twist. (laughs) Okay. Let me catch up. And so, yeah, it's uh, it's really interesting. And I, uh, I also thought it was interesting in your notes, um, the uh, unreliable narrator um, didn't resort in the tired tropes of psychosis equaling violence. Like, can you can you say a little bit more about that? Yeah. Yeah. So, um. I guess, so in a lot of other stories where you have an unreliable narrator, there often ends up being some kind of uh, real, some kind of twist, some kind of revelation that that person has been involved in a violent act in some way. So I'm just thinking of Fight Club, for example, being um, some uh, a book that we reviewed recently, but the idea of um, linking sort of being disconnected from reality, having an altered state of consciousness with violence is quite concerning because the reality is that most people who do experience psychosis and other complex mental health issues aren't violent, um, are much more likely to be victims of violence than they are to be perpetrators of violence. And again, I, I completely understand that there are cases where that you know, someone who has experienced this has engaged in a violent act or has hurt somebody. And those are the cases that often make the news, though. So they're the ones that get sensationalised, get written about, get dissected over and over again, get you know true crime podcasts and stories told about them. And then that becomes the assumption to the public that there is this clear link between something like psychosis and violence. And that's, again, that prevents people from getting support it prevents people from talking about it um, and means that a lot of people just don't understand and are confused and scared by what's going on so again on the plus side one of the things that I did appreciate appreciate about the portrayal of Annalie's experience here was that she wasn't violent Um, she was scared she was isolated in her experience and didn't really know what was going on but I'm glad it didn't resort to her actually hurting somebody else there was a point where I think she 
from memory that she might have threatened somebody in self-defense, but that was about it. Um, and I'm glad it didn't turn out that Annalie was behind some of the murders, which was a fear that I had when I was reading this book. Like, oh, no, please tell me that it's not the case that she's actually hurt people as a result of this. So, you know, again, that was something I did appreciate, even if it's within this um, larger depiction that I wasn't a huge fan of. Yeah, well, and I think that's such an important point to make, too, because um, something that we've been seeing uh, as a pattern in the United States uh, is issues around um, mental health crises and our policing, Um, that the police are called to respond to mental health crises and they don't have the tools And it often results in injury or death for the person experiencing uh, those mental health issues. And it happens disproportionately to black and brown folks as um, most uh, police violence has shown, Um, at least in the United States. I'm not super familiar with statistics um, in other places, but... Um, that's been a big argument of the defund the police movement here is that if we take money away from um, police uh, initiatives, we could fund uh, response teams who are trained in mental health and are equipped to handle things like this because we have this issue of assuming that someone who is experiencing psychosis or other mental health issues is inherently dangerous, um, and especially if they have brown or black skin. Yeah. So in Australia, there's been a couple of um, widely criticised incidents in the last 12 months or so of police officers responding to people who are experiencing a a mental health crisis, so specifically um, an episode of psychosis, and have responded in a way that's often violent, restrictive, or just not making an attempt to sort of de-escalate before getting to the point of violence. So kind of leaping to that conclusion that this is the only way to support people. And there's a big um, push that's been happening recently to actually increase the training of police officers. Um, We do have um, many other layers of concerns around policing in Australia as well, but I'll just mention this as one. So needing to actually train people to know how to de-escalate, to actually support someone in a way that isn't going to harm them um, if they do have to respond to that type of situation. And that's not through a lack of training opportunities that are available, but a lack of those training opportunities being implemented and implemented early in training as well. So not just as professional development for one police force for people that have already been working in the field for 20 years, but actually getting that training much, much earlier and more effectively and having that leadership that this is the expectation for how to respond to someone in that crisis. Um, Thank you for sharing that. I know this is like a little bit off topic of the book, but it's related. And I think, uh, you know, the idea that uh, these issues affect more than, than just uh, a fantasy world and more than even just one individual's issues that it, it affects us entirely as a society. 
Absolutely. I think that's probably about all that we had um, dot pointed <laughs> that we wanted to talk about. Um, just looking through my notes now to see if there was anything else with our themes. I think that's it. Um, so this this wasn't under your themes, but uh, was in your general notes. Uh, the lack of diversity, uh, which is a criticism that I also have um, with this book. Uh, at least you made notes about that. Do you want to talk a little bit? Yeah, yeah. So um, I feel like it's so again, um, you know, we obviously understand why diversity is important, but to the best of my understanding with my, my one reading of this book is I can't recall there being a single person of colour who's explicitly mentioned. There might have been a side character or a background character, but I honestly cannot recall anyone. Um, the fam, the main family were depicted as white, upper class, um, a lack of, I don't think there were any LGBTI characters represented, only heterosexual re- relationships are represented um and the only diversity that sprung to mind and um this wasn't I'll acknowledge this wasn't my original thought I saw this in a Goodreads review but one person mentioned that there was one character with a disability who was represented so um a man who a, a blind man who I think was at the docks or a mariner or something but he was kind of depicted as having these mood swings and it was depicted as, you know, quote, unquote, crazy, which isn't a word that I like to use as it's an ableist term. But, you know, again, it's a sort of lack of um, lack of representation and the very small amount of representation we get there was not handled in a very considered way. So, you know, I don't – I think when you're creating a new world like this, a new setting – there's absolutely no reason why you can't have diversity in that setting. So I just found it surprising that there's such a large cast of characters in this book, but everybody seems to be pretty similar in terms of their demographics and backgrounds and so on. Particularly when you think about the fact that they supposedly travel to to different lands as well. I know it's a hallucination in the end, but still... Yeah, there could have been opportunities, even if um, yeah, the main fa- the main family was depicted as um, you know a white family, and the main re- relationships were heterosexual. There's still opportunities to actually involve some more characters, <laughs> to be explicit about there being diversity in those characters that they're meeting from faraway lands. But again, there's no there's no reason why the family had to be you know, in this particular demographic in the first place. But um, if you are going to do that, I, I just found it surprising, like quite jarring the lack of diversity in this novel. All right. So overall, how would y'all rate this book? Decimal points are welcome. Uh, fractions, decimal points, however you want to work it out. Oh, I had it in my head out of five. Um, so I'll just double that. <laughs> yeah. Quick maths. <laughs> Some quick math, yeah. <laughs> I would say four out of ten. Um, I feel like it just 
there's just so much potential here that didn't come to fruition. So I love murder mystery. I love fantasy. Blending them together should make it the perfect book for me. But oh, I've said this so many times, but the world building is just a mess. <laughs> um, and it's not good in terms of the fantasy, but also in terms of the murder mystery. Like you, I suppose a good whodunit where you want the reader to play along and solve the puzzle. You want all the pieces and all the suspects present at the start. But with the story, we get a random uncle in the middle. And then as we discuss, Casamaras and Picardi came out of nowhere. And it just became sort of a cop-out instead of uh, what feels like a, a valid outcome to the mystery, I suppose. Yeah, and I just wish there was more exploration of the sisterhood, given there are 12 of them. <laughs> but we got so much more focus on the romance instead. So yeah, four out of 10 for me. I would agree. I'm sitting at, in my brain, 4.5 out of 10. Um, the 0.5, if only for like, I don't know. I, I liked the I liked the stuff about even though it wasn't fully fleshed out, the stuff about being a, the people of the salt and the I don't know, there was there was some stuff about the the atmosphere that I found interesting, but it wasn't really fulfilled. So I'm gonna sit at four point five. Great. Um I'm going to give it a five out of ten, which I thought was going to be a low rating, but maybe is one of the higher ratings from this group. Um, okay. So I feel like <laughs> I've already covered much of what I disliked about the story and um, Priscilla and Jenny, I, I agree with the points that you've already raised. I think my main concerns kind of can be categorized into um, the difficulties with world building. The characters felt quite flat to me the mystery, the reader not having a chance really to solve the mystery, um, which goes against, I think, the rules of mystery writing. Um, and, yeah, it just kind of lacked this personality and this nuance that I would have really liked to have seen because I thought the setting was quite interesting. The five points I did give are probably related to the fact that I still did find it to be quite an entertaining story. So, um I was, you know, it wasn't like it was a slog to get through or anything. If I'd just read it and turned my brain off and been like, yeah, it's a gothic horror, there's dancing, there's pretty dresses, there's um, some, you know, uh, scary things going on, then I probably would have been okay. But it was really hard to do that with my background and my review brain in mind. Um, I do like the original fairy tale, 12 Dancing Princesses. Um, but I just don't think it kind of captured the magic of that original story or some of the other depictions that have been in that story. A lot of the Goodreads reviews referred to the Barbie movie, 12 Dancing Princesses, which I think I watched a long time ago and now I'm actually like, maybe I should give that Barbie movie another try. Um, but, you know, a, a book like um, <laughs> The Girls at the King Flip the Girls at the Kingfisher Club, which I read a few years ago and quite enjoyed, was another retelling of 12 Dancing Princesses. So I feel like there are stories that have done it well, Barbie or not. So, look, from a, from a kind of entertainment standpoint and you know, some of those things I touched on, like the empathy 
with some of those portrayals I thought was quite good but overarchingly it really unfortunately fell quite Mm. flat for me yeah I uh I agree with everything that y'all said um I think I'm gonna hover around uh 5.5 um honestly for the first three-fourths of the book uh I mean even within that like I had a lot of issues uh but like Elise said I found it entertaining um the 0.5 is specifically for the fairy shoes um I I want a pair of fairy slippers so um yeah also that poor cobbler you know he really just you know they danced with those shoes yeah (laughs) uh anyways yes I think 5.5 5.5 out of 10 but okay this may be one of our more negative reviews, oh. Priscilla, that we've given. <laughs> we normally tend to I choose. Yeah. You've got to get it out. Sorry. <laughs> I hate giving negative reviews, but I think it's important to be honest. So, um, And you got to get it out, you know, mm, in a positive space. Absolutely. So. Yeah. yeah. And I went into this book yeah. knowing True. nothing about it aside from the cover and the synopsis and the fact that there might be a bit of mental health content. So I don't, mm. you know, I don't think I was like biased going into it or anything either. Um, and, you know, I specifically tried my hardest yeah. not to spoil you, Priscilla, <laughs> when you were reading it, because I read it, um, I read it a week or two before yeah. you did. <laughs> and I'm just like, please send me your thoughts as you go along. And then when yeah. you send a, started sending your frustrations, <laughs> I'm like, me too, <laughs> me too. <laughs> I also thought that. So, yeah, I, I I don't think I was biased or anything. It's a pretty genuine sort of um, criticisms we have. And I think a lot of it just comes down to it had a lot of potential but maybe just wasn't as complex or sensitive to some of the issues that we really would have liked to have seen to make it stand out a bit more. Yeah, I almost wish yeah. that the book was mm-hmm. twice as long because I think there would have been a lot more room to do that world build, uh, building that we were really wanting and uh, to sort of hash out some of the issues that it doesn't delve really deep into to introduce um, those characters that just randomly pop up um, at the beginning. Uh, so, mm-hmm. yeah, I, I think you guys are totally right in naming the potential of the book. Um, and, and I'd definitely be willing to give the author another shot. Um, I did enjoy the style of writing, and I think if she wrote something, I don't know if she has other books. I have not looked, but um, yeah, I'd be interested if she wrote another like fantasy or something in this same vein um, to give it a shot. Um, I also would like to point out that there is going to be a TV show made from this book. Wait, what? Yeah. <laughs> I found this when I was looking up reviews, I think. It is getting adapted into a TV show. See, that's interesting that is the, to me. Well, yeah. I mean, that is the shock of my night. <laughs> <laughs> I can see it as a CW kind of... Sure. Like Riverdale sort of style. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. And I, I see now that the, the author 
um, has her BFA in theater design and production. So mm-hmm. she stage managed tragic operas. Interesting. Um, so I think writing scripts might be up her mm-hmm. alley. I hope she, that she's at least involved in the process. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe the show will be able to do things that the book didn't. That's what I was just wondering. Like maybe this might be better as a TV show, more of that visual medium. And maybe if the mm-hmm. writers just, you know, maybe drop some hints earlier on with some of those, the mystery elements so that the, the viewer has a chance to actually guess and to, you know, if, if they don't guess to actually go back and pick up on things. Because I, I remember when they first said the name Cosmaris in the book, because I was on my um, my Kindle, so I actually searched it and I'm like, no, this person has not been mentioned the entire book. I didn't just skim over it. So maybe there might be opportunities with that team of writers to actually just do a, a few more clues along the way and to, um, yeah, just do some things that maybe were missed in the story. I'll, I'd be curious to watch it, I think. I don't know if I'd read more from the same author, but I'd definitely check out the series if I yeah, if it's done well. Yeah, I think it would be in the same vein as, as I mentioned before, Riverdale, where you sort of turn your brain off and just enjoy, yeah. go along for the ride. Sort of thing. <laughs> Definitely. Yes. Oh. Well, thank you so much for coming on our podcast to talk about this. Um, really appreciate the work that y'all do and uh, I'm excited to listen to more of your podcast and uh, you know definitely keep us informed on your Court of Silver Flame thoughts once we've all read it. (laughs) Thinking of starting a group chat in that um, uh, podcasting support group that we're members of just be like okay I need a spoiler group so I can actually talk about all of my feelings. Yes. Cool. Thank you for having us on as well. We love your discussions and we look forward to hear, listening more to more of your episodes too. Absolutely. Thank you. And uh, just a reminder, because we like to end every episode with uh, the reminder that all bodies are good bodies. Um, yeah. Fantastic. Anything to add, nope. Jen? Elise, Priscilla, Shelby, your bodies are good. Thank you. And As so are yours. <laughs> Great. Mm. Um, do you mind right. if I just give a quick uh, plug of our social media stuff and everything? Please Great. do. Okay. So um, just in case anyone is interested in checking out our podcast. So like I said before, our name's Novel Feelings and you can find us on you know, all the big podcast listening platforms are on apple and spotify you can also go to our website which is novelfeelings.com or find us on social media so we're on twitter instagram and goodreads just look for at novel underscore feelings on any of those platforms thank you so much yep and as usual (laughs) thank you and um we'll we'll go ahead and plug ours too that um we're also on instagram uh, and Goodreads at Chubra Book Club. And uh, we also have a website, chubrabookclub.com. So thanks for listening. And Elise and Priscilla, thanks for joining Thank us. You. Thank you. Thank you.